بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله الحمد لله it's been a couple of weeks and we are now at lesson 90 covering the radiant light on the life of the Prophet ﷺ in the Medinan period. And we are now in the fifth year of the Hijrah. And this is now in the month of Shawwal that we're covering. So in the month of Shawwal, in the fifth year after the Hijrah to Medina, we have a major event that occurred in the life of the Prophet ﷺ and the community. And this major event is known as Ghazwatu al-Khandaq or Ghazwatu al-Ahzab. It's given two names. It is called the Battle of the Trench or it is called the Battle of the Confederates from Ahzab or Hizb. So we're going to discuss how this battle started, what led up to it, and the things that took place before it began. And this will take a couple of weeks, maybe two weeks, maybe three. So we said that we're in the fifth year after the Hijrah, in the month of Shawwal. Now how did this battle start? We have to go back a little bit to Lesson 85. We're now in Lesson 90. Lesson 85 we discussed the expulsion of Banu Nadir from Medina. We remember in that incident that after Banu Nadir were sieged for about 7 to 15 days, there's different opinions, Banu Nadir finally surrendered unconditionally. And they agreed that they would leave their compounds, they would leave that area and leave Medina altogether. The Prophet ﷺ said that he no longer accepts from them the terms that were previously offered, but he gave them the opportunity to depart with their lives and whatever their camels could carry, leaving their weapons behind. So what happened to Banu Nadir? Right? That question was asked. I think you asked that question. Uh, because we know from Banu Qaynuqa that they went upwards to Sham. Banu Nadir. Where did they go after this expulsion? Well, we know that many of the chiefs, the main chiefs of Banu Nadir and many of their people, they settled in a place called Khaybar. Khaybar. They were living in exile in this place called Khaybar. Now today, if you were to visit Khaybar, it's only a two-hour drive. But two hours on camel and on foot, I mean, not two hours, what is a, a two-hour drive today? would take a significantly longer amount of time if you're going on camel or on foot. But it's outside of Medina, but it's not too far away. So they settled there at Khaybar, and Khaybar was a place that they were able to cultivate uh, lots of date palms and engage in the agricultural practices they were doing when they were in the areas of Medina. So in the seerah we read that as the chieftains of Banu Nadir were settling in Khaybar, they began to plot and scheme a way to get back at the Muslims. How can they get back at them for this humiliating expulsion? So a group of the Yahud from Banu Nadir attempted to uh, rouse some of the Arab tribes to join them in collectively attacking the Muslim community in Medina. And that happened, and that's the background to the battle. So they want to come back to Medina. They want to come back to their ancestral lands. They want to get revenge for the expulsion. They want to take their date plantations back. And, but they can't do it alone. So they have to get the support of these other Arab tribes. And this is what they try to do. So we read in the seerah how these chieftains among the Yahud of Banu Nadir, Salam ibn Mishkam, Huyay ibn Akhtab, and others went to Mecca to speak with Abu Sufyan and the chieftains of Quraysh 
to ask them to join them in this group attack against the Muslim community. So we read in the seerah that when they got to Mecca and spoke to the leaders of Quraysh, they said to them, we will be with you against him until we can eliminate him once and for all, meaning the Prophet So when Abu Sufyan heard this from the chiefs of the Jews, he said, Marhaban, this is a great idea. He says, the most beloved people to us are those who can help us and our animosity against Muhammad. So they want to take the, the, this offer from the Jews. And in this part of the story, we find a very interesting incident. Abu Sufyan was speaking to these chiefs of the Jews, and he said to them, You are the people of the first kitab, the first book, right? What, what book is this? The, the Torah. You are the people of the first book, and you know what me, we and Muhammad differ about. Is our religion better or is his religion better? Now he is, he is a, a mushrik at the time and he is asking the Yehud, is our religion, meaning his religion of Wathaniya, of idol worship, better or is Muhammad's religion better? Just Tawheed. The answer is obvious. And you already know what they're going to say. Right? So, they said, your religion is better than his, and you are worthier of the truth than he is. That was their answer. Do you think they actually believed that? They probably didn't really believe that on a theological level, but they're saying whatever they can say to elicit the support of these Arab tribes. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this incident in the Qur'an. He says, subhanahu wa ta'ala, أَلَمْ تَرَ إِلَى الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا نَصِيبًا مِنَ الْكِتَابِ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْجِبْتِ وَالطَّاغُوتِ وَيَقُولُونَ لِلَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا هَؤُلَاءِ أَهْدَى مِنَ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا سَبِيلًا Have you not seen those who were given a share of the book? They believe in jibt and taghut. Jibt is sometimes interpreted as sorcery or magic. And taghut is basically evil. Uh, transgression, tyranny. They could also refer to worshipping other than Allah, right? They believe in jibt and taghut, and they say to the disbelievers that they are better guided than the believers. Ahda. Allah says, they are the ones whom Allah has cursed. They are the ones who receive the la'na of Allah, and whomsoever Allah has cursed, you will not find for them any. Nasir, any helper. So this is how Allah Ta'ala described that incident, which was a discussion between the chiefs of the Jews and Abu Sufyan and the chiefs, chieftains of Quraysh. So when they said this to Quraysh, that you are more guided than they are, you are worthier of the truth than they are, Quraysh became very happy. And so they encouraged others to join these Jewish tribe chieftains in going to war against the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So in this, at this point in the story, they take this mithaq, they take an oath with each other, that they're going to support each other, and they go set, up, set a date for the future, when they're going to assemble their forces, and rally all the people, and make that move, where everybody's marching against the Muslims. So this is stage one. You have to remember something. It wasn't too long ago that you had Badr part two, where you had the meeting. Remember after Uhud, as the Mushrikun were leaving, they set an appointed time between themselves and the Muslims that they would meet at Badr again one year from that date. And they would meet in battle. And we've discussed how when that time came, Abu Sufyan made it appear as if he's going out with the troops. And when they get out on the outskirts, he says, oh, you know, we're dealing with a drought and it's better if we go back. We have more pressing concerns. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to go for that second meeting. So the Quraysh are reluctant to go out again on their own to fight the Muslims. They suffered a humiliating defeat at Badr. Uhud, although it was in their favor from one, per one perspective, it wasn't an overwhelming victory. It wasn't a de decisive victory. And they didn't go to that second appointment. 
So they weren't so eager to go out and fight on their own. But now that the Jewish chieftains of Banu Nadir are saying, we're going to rally this tribe and that tribe and you can join us and we'll all go together collectively, that gives them more desire to go out and fight again because they have more support. So what happens here is Banu Nadir is using their economic uh, advantage to leverage support from some of these tribes. They're offering a year's supply of food to whoever joins them from these tribes. Because in Khaybar, there's massive date palm groves, plantations. So you have tons and tons of dates that they're producing every year. So they're agreeing that they will give to whomever joins them uh, one year supply of food. And this is dates. And this is basically half of their harvest for the year. They're offering to give to those tribes just for going and joining them. So after they secured the agreement of Quraysh, they went to some of the other tribes. They went to Ghatafan. Remember, Ghatafan was in antagonism towards the Muslims. And they gave the same invitation to Ghatafan that they gave to Quraysh. And they told the Ghatafan tribe that Quraysh agreed to join them and they should join them as well. And they promised Ghatafan a year's supply of dates if they joined them. So they agreed. They agreed that they would take half of the yield of Banu Nadir, taking half of their yield of dates in return for going out with them. But the motivation for Quraysh was different than the motivation for Banu Ghatafan. Because Quraysh still had the trade routes blocked. So there was an economic incentive involved. But for Ghatafan, it wasn't so much economic because they weren't as affected by the trade routes being blocked. They weren't as affected. For them, it was the opportunity to get some wealth and to attack whom they considered enemies. It wasn't just economic. And so they agreed to join them in return for these dates. And so the Jews now have the agreement of Quraysh, the agreement of Banu Ghatafan, and now they're going to go out and seek support from other tribes while Quraysh do the same thing and go to some of the other clans and elicit their support. So now you have Banu Nadir getting more tribes and Quraysh trying to get more tribes enlisted into this big battle. So now you have what's known as the formation of the Ahzab. And this is why it's called the Battle of Ahzab. Because the word Ahzab is the plural of Hizb. His means a group or a party, we can say confederate. It's a confederation or a collection of tribes all rallying together to attack the Muslim community. So Quraysh sends their delegations to these smaller tribes. Uh, and these tribes had also been affected by the blocking of the trade route. So they now elicit the support of Banu Asad, Banu Sulaym, Banu Murra and Ashja' and Banu Kinana, and so on and so forth. All of these tribes have agreed to join in this effort and contribute to the war. Now in the Sirah works, what we find is a very detailed account of the names of all of these tribes, how much they contributed financially, how many horses they contributed, how many camels they contributed, how many men they contributed. And they tally up all of the numbers of men, and animals and equipment, we're not going to go through all of those lists, but it's a lot. When you tally up all of those numbers, what you come to, according to Ibn Ishaq at least, is 10,000 fighting men. 10,000 fighting men, if you add Banu Nadir with Quraysh and the tribes that both got to join in in this attack. 10,000 people. Now at that time, the Muslims who are of a fighting age amounted to no, long, no larger than 3,000. So this means you have 10,000 versus 3,000. So it's three or four times larger than the Muslim forces. This battle is called the Battle of Ahzab because it's a confederation of these Arab tribes with Banu Nadir. The scholars of Sira mentioned that this is the first time in the history of Arabia where all of these different tribes all come together like this to fight against a single force. 
Never before in the history of Arabia did the tribes all collectively come together like this to fight against a single enemy. They came together like this for the very first time. It was literally a confederation of kufr against iman. The forces of kufr against the forces of iman. The forces of light, of light against the forces of darkness. And this is the reality of the Ahzab. It's also called the Battle of Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench, because as you know, that will be a strategy employed to interdict or prevent them or stall them at the very least from getting into the city of Medina. Now, if you have all of Quraysh agreeing to this and so many of these other tribes and sub-tribes and Banu Nadir agreeing to this and getting others involved, it's impossible that that news won't eventually reach Medina. Obviously, it's, the news is going to get out because it's too big to hide. And so, of course, this news reaches the Prophet Wasallam. And it's mentioned in the seerah that it reached him because there was a, a group from Khuza'a who came to Medina, reaching Medina in four nights, rushing to get there, just to inform the Prophet that this attack was impending, that they were preparing marshalling forces to go march on Medina. So what normally takes 11 to 12 days, if not longer, they traveled in four days or four nights to get there just to tell the, the Prophet So the Prophet when he found out about this attack, he did exactly as he did when he heard about their impending arrival before Uhud. When he heard about them coming for Uhud, or what was to be the Battle of Uhud, what did he do? He did a shura. He held a council. He consulted them in the, in the affair. وَشَاوِرْهُمْ فِي الْأَمْرِ So he gathered the Muslims together and he had this meeting consulting them about the matter. Now if you go back to Uhud, you, you remember that there were two ideas, two suggestions. A lot of the younger Muslims who weren't able to participate at Badr wanted to go out into a battlefield space and confront Quraysh head on in an, you know, an actual classical style of battle. Whereas many of the elders said, no, we should remain in Medina and defend Medina in a kind of urban warfare, leading them into the city. It'll be defensible. We can do it. However, before the Battle of Ahzab, there was no such differing. No one was saying, let's go here or let's go there. We don't have lots of details in the seerah about different suggestions. What we find in the seerah is really one suggestion, which is to defend Medina by, by digging a trench around it. Khandaq. And that is the suggestion mentioned by Salman al-Farisi radiallahu anhu. In the famous hadith of Salman, we find him speaking up and giving his opinion about how this smaller force of 3,000 can overcome this larger force of 10,000 by digging this trench. Interestingly, this is going to be the first battle of Salman and Farisi, even though he was already in Medina. Now, we didn't speak about his story, did we? In the seerah, at least. We didn't speak about his story and how he was led to Medina and how he converted to Islam. But in the summer, we did give two khutbahs talking about the story of Salman radiallahu anhu and the long journey he took to get from Persia all the way to Medina where he is living as a slave. Eventually, he meets the Prophet sallallahu and becomes a Muslim. What a lot of people don't realize is that by this time, Salman al-Farisi radiallahu anhu is in his 70s. He's in his 70s. But you hear the story, he's working in the date palm plantations for the Jew who owns him. He's climbing up into the trees, he's coming down. That's a 60 or 70 year old man doing this. He's not a young man. Because he, remember, he's living years and years from one place to another until he eventually reaches Medina. So he reaches here. Now, at this stage, he's been freed. Before this, he wasn't freed, and that's why he wasn't able to participate in the previous battles. So he 
was captured and sold into slavery. That's how he gets to Medina. He becomes a Muslim, but his Jewish master uh, refused to free him. And the only way he would agree to free Salman, the terms given by his Jewish master, was if Salman plants 100 date palm saplings, you know, the small baby trees, plants them, tends to them until they grow and produce dates, and then he harvests those dates for one season. Now, if you take a date palm sapling and you plant it in the ground, you have to dig, you have to irrigate, you have to make sure the water gets there. And that's multiply that times 100, and then how long does it take for a date palm sapling to grow to where it's giving that you know, a proper quantity of dates? Yeah, by some estimates, it's like a decade or more. Right? It could be a decade or more before that happens. That means he could be 80 years old before he's able to secure his freedom. And the only way he could secure the freedom is if he's doing all of that work and harvesting all of these dates, all 100 trees, by the time they're, they've grown to fruition. So really, the, the Jewish master is giving a term that is really impossible. It's impossible for someone conventionally to do something like that, especially if they're 70 years old. So what happened and how did he get his freedom? Well, in the story, we learned that when those conditions were communicated to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ told him, Salman, to let him know when the time comes for planting these saplings. You have to pick the right time. And when that time came, the Prophet ﷺ went with other companions and helped him plant these 100 saplings and do the groundwork. And because of the barakah of his blessed hand, the saplings grew faster than they normally would, growing to full fruition within two years. And then they went and helped harvest these dates to secure his freedom a lot quicker. And so the, the Jewish master honored the agreement and he was freed, alhamdulillah. So now here we are, Salman radiallahu anhu is suggesting that they use the khandaq, this trench. He says in the narration, Ya Rasulullah, back in Persia we have a tactic. We dig a trench and use it as a protection against our enemy so they can't cross into our area. And this is going to be the first time trench warfare is used in Arabia. This is the first time. It was never used before this. And the scholars have very frequently commented about this in reflecting on the seerah, noting that this teaches us a broader lesson, that in Islam, we take the very best that other cultures have to offer. We take the best that they have to offer in matters that don't contradict the deen. So here the Rasul is adopting a battle tactic used by the Persians. And he also adopts other modes of defense or spreading the deen. We know in the Shema'il we have the famous hadith of the Khatim. How it was told to the Prophet that the emperors and rulers would not accept letters from dignitaries unless they are stamped with a seal. And for that reason, he had a signet ring made that he used to stamp the letters, sending them to the emperors and rulers, which had Muhammadun Rasulullah. So he's adopting a practice from another culture for the sake of calling them to Allah Ta'ala. He adopts some of the modest and wholesome styles of clothing found with other cultures in that region, right? Al-Jubbatul Rumaniya, for example, the Byzantine Jubba with tight sleeves, basically like this kind of Jubba, right? Or a little longer. This is not, this is not uh, originally an Arab dress. It was something for Byzantium from the north. He adopted it. So they would adopt the very best cultural practices and aspects that did not contradict Islam. And this is one example. So the suggestion of Salman was accepted to dig this trench. Now, a lot of people, when they hear the story of the Battle of the Trench, and they're imagining in their head what this trench would look like, they picture a trench encircling all of Medina, 
And if they ever visit Medina and they look around, they may wonder, how is it humanly possible for, what, 2,000 people, perhaps, 3,000 people, to dig a trench going all the way across Medina like that in just 10 days? It's, it's really not human possible. Humanly possible. No, there's no bulldozers. They have very basic tools. They have shovels. They have pickaxes. They have baskets for loading up the dirt. How do you do that? Well, first of all, it wasn't a complete circle. That's what we have to understand. It wasn't a complete trench encircling the entire city. It was limited to the north side of Medina. So it's not a, it's not a full circle. It's not even a, a half circle or a semicircle. It's just one area in the north that is dug as a trench. Why do they only do that portion? Well, it's geography. Because in Medina at the time, and still today obviously, you have these volcanic fields, right? So you have Waqim and Wabara, two volcanic fields, and then you have Medina situated in between them. And then to the south of Medina, you have large, massive date palm plantations. So the volcanic fields make it very difficult for them to cross with their cavalry. In the south, the date palm plantations are so thick that it's nearly impossible for them to engage in warfare or a mounted you know, offensive attack with their horses or camels through the dense date palm plantations. So the only vulnerable area where they could literally enter the city without, the, uh, without resistance from the natural elements would be the north. So it's from the north side that this trench was dug. And we have some, we have some details in the seerah about how that was done. We have some uh, modern researchers who research based on the data how long and how deep and how wide that trench uh, would have been. What we do know from the seerah is that when the command was given, the Prophet ﷺ assigned 40 yards for 10 men. So if you measure out 40 yards, in those 40 yards, 10 people are responsible for digging and transporting the dirt and building this trench. And each group that is assigned 40 yards is further divided. So you have the Ansar responsible for their large area. You have the Muhajirun responsible for their area. And you know the, the Sira works go into detail where they talk about the very specific landmarks and land features from what area to what area this group was digging, from what area this group was digging. And these are all names that we're not really familiar with because those landmarks are now, uh, now there's hotels over them now. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't even recognize them. Uh, the, probably the best way to get a, a more accurate understanding would be to uh, reference those landmarks with the names of the hotels. And there's a book that does that. Uh, there's a book that uh, it's in some 800 pages. It's called Mosu'atul Medina, the Encyclopedia of Medina, where an author uh, took the ancient books of history of Medina and the landmarks and superimposed those names over the current locations. So he tells you, you know, okay, the Movin Pick Hotel in Medina or the Aqiq Hotel in Medina, well, that's where this used to be. You know, this landmark or this house or this thing because most of those buildings are outside of Medina today or they're on the outskirts of Medina right so they're digging here and the question that is asked is how big was the trench and it's difficult to get a very accurate uh, measurement or to get a measurement that we can have full certainty in but some of the scholars who specialize in Sira have tried their best to estimate the distance. So some have said that it was, if you look at that area of the north and the volcanic fields, it would have been about two kilometers. So imagine two kilometers of distance dug. And they say that it would have been probably 10 to 13 feet wide. Right, so they're you know they're estimating the distance, the, the the width that would prevent an animal from crossing or jumping over, 
And they say the depth would have been between 15 and 20 feet. Right? It has to be deep enough to where you can't just you know, dip down and easily climb up the other side. So that's the estimate. Two kilometers long, about 10 to 13 feet wide, about 10 or 15 to 20 feet deep. That is dug by 2,000 to 3,000 Muslims over the course of 10 days. 10 days. So, this, you have to understand, the trench is not meant to prevent them from ever reaching. They're not digging a moat around the city that no one can ever reach inside. And if they did that, that would open them up to a new problem. They have to, they have, to have food. And this is occurring in the wintertime. And their food supplies are dwindling. So at best, this is holding them off, buying them time, so they can tire them out and delay the inevitable so they can mount a more effective defense. So the seerah goes into some really beautiful stories about just the preparation for khandaq, and that's what we're talking about today. The seerah mentions that Salman radiallahu anhu, who suggested this idea in the first place, how old was he at this time? 70 plus. They're not even sure of the exact age. They just know he's around that age. 70 plus. They say that despite being 70 plus years of age, Salman was seen as one of the strongest workers who could do the work of 10 men. He could outwork almost anyone among the Muslims from the Muhajirun and the Ansar. So he was such a hard worker digging this trench that a rivalry began to break out. Because think about it, the Muhajirun are from the Aus and the Khazraj, the, the, sorry, the Ansar are from the Aus and the Khazraj, the Muhajirun are from people of Mecca. To whom does Salman belong? He's not Ausi, he's not Khazraji, he's not uh, Qurashi, right? He's Persian or Farisi. So it's mentioned in the Seerah that he was working so hard that some of the Ansar were basically in a bragging match with the Muhajirun saying, Salman's with us. He, he's on our side, so we're outworking you. And the Muhajirun were saying, no, no, Salman, Salman minna, nahnu. He's, he's from us, so we're outworking you. And when this was heard by the Prophet wasallam, he says in the beautiful statement, Salman minna ahlil bayt. He says, Salman is from us the family, the household of the Prophet ﷺ. And the scholars, they say that this doesn't mean that Salman was obviously literally from the Ahlul Bayt in terms of lineage. He was not from that in lineage. But they say it was a kind of spiritual paternity, if you will. And there's a very special meaning in that, in that he belongs to the Prophet ﷺ and his household. So as they're digging the trench and having this friendly rivalry, you know, different things are going on. The Prophet ﷺ is leading from the front and is digging the trench along with everyone else. And this motivated the Muslims to keep digging no matter how tired they were. Think about it. When you have your leader whom you love more than anything else in the world, and you see him digging tirelessly, you will continue to push yourself even if you're completely worn out. So they're digging and digging because they see him digging and digging. Uh, Al-Bara ibn Azib radiallahu anhu, he mentions a very beautiful incident. He says that on the day of Ahzab and Khandaq, meaning in the lead up, I saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam carrying away dirt. You know, they have the dirt in these large baskets. I saw him carrying away the dirt with his blessed hands, and I saw that his stomach was covered in the soil, right? Because they have their garments lifted to carry this. He is covered in the soil because he's working like this. And Bukhari mentions uh, another beautiful story, that as they're digging this trench, the Prophet ﷺ begins to recite or to say the lines of Abdullah ibn Rawaha, radiyallahu anhu, which is, Allahumma, lawla anta mahtadayna, wala tasaddaqna, wala salayna, 
فأنزلن سكينة علينا وثبت الأقدام إن لقينا إن الأعداء قد بغوا علينا إذا أرادوا فتنة أبينا أبينا The Tabarani narration says he lengthened the last part أبينا like this which means Oh Allah were it not for you we would not have been guided nor would we have given charity or prayed so send serenity upon us Make our feet firm when we meet the enemy. Indeed, they have transgressed against us. And if they want fitna, fitna here means shirk or strife. Abayna, we refuse. That's one thing he said. He said other things too. Allahumma la isha illa isha al-akhira fansur al-ansar wal-muhajira. Oh Allah, there is no life except the life of the hereafter. So give victory to the Ansar and the Muhajirun. There's lots of narrations like this where he's saying this stuff loudly to motivate everyone as they're digging in the heat, as they're digging with dwindling food supplies in the wintertime in Medina where it's 3,000 of them at the most before 10,000 people arrive to surround them to try to wipe Islam off the face of the earth. This is what they're doing. So they're working all day up into the night and finally they go home to their families at night. And when they're digging the trench constantly, they wouldn't leave their post. The only time they would leave is if they had to relieve themselves. And even then, they would go and ask idhan, permission from the Prophet ﷺ to do so. So they completed the trench eventually. And it was six days before the Ahzab arrived. So they finished the trench. And they have six more days to rest, recuperate, gather their weapons, plan out their defense of the city, and get ready. So they're suffering through all this, as we said. This is the winter time. Their food supplies are dwindling. And we have lots of narrations just about the hunger aspect. Because they're doing all of this in hunger. One narration says that all they had at the time of food supplies was barley cooked in a kind of rancid, old fat. You know, you, you melt the fat, you, you cook the barley in that, and it gives the food a very foul odor because the fat is rancid. So they're eating this stuff, and it has no flavoring, there's no salt, there's no pepper, there's nothing, and it's cooked in rancid fat, so it smells horrible. They're only eating it to get rid of the hunger. Most people haven't experienced that where the food is so unpalatable, you only eat it to remove the pain of hunger. Otherwise, it has no, no good flavor, and it smells bad. So they're eating this. So they began to feel hung, more hungry as the days went by. And you hear these narrations about Sahaba tying stones on their stomachs. A lot of that was taking place in the lead up to Ahzab. So one narration mentions that Talha, radiallahu anhu, had lifted his shirt up to show that he had a stone tied around his stomach, pressed in to, and there was a reason for that. They would do that as a kind of old Arab folk medicine. Uh, they believe that the heat of the liver is, or the liver uh, becomes hot with the hunger, and the coolness of the stone would alleviate that heat from the liver, thereby alleviating the hunger somewhat. So he lifts his shirt and he shows he's got one stone tied around his stomach. When you think stone, don't think a huge rock like this. Think of a flat, a flatter kind of stone. And when he did that, the Prophet ﷺ lifted his and he had two stones going above and beyond. So these are the muhajirun and the ansar. What's going on with the munafiqun? They're always around somewhere. As you might imagine, as the Muslims are marshalling their efforts to dig this trench as fast as they possibly can, putting in the effort, the, muhajir, the muhajirun and the ansar, the munafiqun were pretending to be injured, pretending to be sick, pretending to be too tired and they have to rest, making excuses. They would come to the trench and dig a little bit and when others were getting busy gathering dirt, moving dirt, they would sneak away, go back to their homes and hide out so no one can see them, avoiding as much work as they possibly could. So they're not involved, except in the minimal amount 
to keep up appearances. In the lead up to Ahzab, besides the digging of the trench, there's also different miracles that happened. And the ulama remind us that the miracles come as a way of strengthening the believers. And these miracles strengthen the certainty of the believers and also provide ma'una. Right? One of the types of miracles in the typology of miracles is ma'una, where Allah Ta'ala breaks the patterns of creation, khalqul ada, as a way of assisting his servants when they're going through a hard time. So we have different miracles that happened. And we had some miracle we have some miracles that took place that were not ma'una per se, but they were uh, giving glad tidings to the Prophet of things to come. So we have the narration of Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhu. In the famous narration of Jabir, he says, when the trench was being dug before the battle of Ahzab, I saw the Prophet in a state of intense hunger. And I went to my wife and I asked her, do you have anything to eat at all? Why does he ask that? He wants her to prepare it, to give it to the Prophet He is concerned with him receiving food because he sees him in a state of intense hunger. So he goes to his wife and he says that she brought out a bag containing one sa'a, one sa'a of barley. How much is a sa'a? It's like 2.3 liters. So it's not, it's, it's not a lot. It's not a lot. It's enough for a few people, not a lot for a large group. So she brings out this bag. He says that we also had a house lamb. What's a house lamb? It's a small little lamb that goes around and eats the scraps of food here and there. It's like a little pet. It's not the kind of lamb that you're taking out and grazing and fattening up for food. Small lamb. So he says, I slaughtered this house lamb while she ground up the barley into flour. And finally, when we were done, we put the meat into an earthenware pot and I went back to the Prophet ﷺ and whispered to him what we had done. And I said, come to our house. You and a, and a small group of you. Come, just a few of you. So the Prophet ﷺ, when he heard this, he immediately shouted, Ya Ahl al-Khandaq, O people of the trench, Jabr has prepared a feast, a feast for you. So come along. Ta'alu. It's a sa'a. It's not much food. Little house lamb, a sa'a. What, you're going to feed five to seven people max? But he calls it a feast. And he takes it upon himself to invite not those five or so people that Jabir suggested, but everyone there digging at the trench. And it's estimated that it was about a thousand people. One narration says 1,500. So... He says, Jabir, when the Prophet arrived, وسلم, she brought out the kneaded flour, so it hasn't been made into bread yet, but she's ground up the barley, she's kneaded it, so it's ready to be cooked. So he goes and he blows some of his blessed saliva into the pot. He goes to that pot and blows into it with the saliva, the nafath, like this. And he says, call another baker, Khabaz, to come and bake the bread with you. It's not a lot of barley. But he's telling them, go get another baker. It's as if he's saying, you're going to need more hands to prepare more and more bread. He said, go get another baker who can bake bread with you and ladle the soup from your earthenware pot, but don't remove it from the hearth, you know, the, like the fire. Don't take it off the fire and start serving, just keep it there. Keep it cooking, and get some more bakers to come. So Jabir says, the guests were around a thousand, and I swear by Allah that all of them ate to their fill until they left the meal and went away, and the pot was still boiling as it was before, brimming and full, and there was still unneeded dough that was yet to be cooked. Allah had to put the barakah in the food and he said, don't move the pot from the fire. Just keep 
ladling it out. More and more and more and more. Allah Ta'ala created the barakah of increase in that food such that they had leftovers and a thousand people were fed. This was documented and experienced by over 1,000 of the Sahaba that day. Another narration, and that's one of the miracles, another narration was not ma'una as such uh, of feeding them, but it was a glad tidings. Uh, this narration is mentioned in a number of collections. As they were digging the trench, Salman narrates this. As they were digging the trench, Salman is in the trench digging, and he has this pickaxe, and he gets to a large rock. And he's struggling to break this rock. He's hitting it over and over, but it's not breaking. And you have to break the rock if you're going to move it to move more earth and make it wide and deep. But he's struggling. So... The Prophet wasallam sees what's going on and he goes over to Salman. He takes the pickaxe and he says, Bismillah, Allahu Akbar, and he strikes it. And it leads, lets out this large flash and one third of the rock broke like that. And he says, Allahu Akbar, I have just seen that Allah has given me the keys to Sham, the keys, meaning dominion. The spread of Islam, the keys to Sham. And then he struck it again, saying, Bismillah, Wallahu Akbar. And another third of it broke. And he said, Allahu Akbar, I have seen the, the keys of Persia. And I can see the white pillars of Madain, you know, the Persian Empire. And then he struck the final third and it crumbled. And he said, Allahu Akbar, I have been given the keys to Yemen. And Allah, and by Allah, I can see the doors to the gates of Sana'a right now. So Allah Ta'ala disclosed to him in a vision at each strike different areas to which Islam would spread. And we see that Islam spread to the north, it spread to the east, to the areas of Persia, and it spread to the south and the Yemen, exactly as he saw it. So that was one miracle that took place in connection with Khandaq. Another miracle uh, or we could call it a miracle, I suppose, but it's more of a, uh, a prediction that was given by the Prophet ﷺ as they were digging the trench that came true as a confirmation of his prophethood. So it's from Dala'il al-Nabuwa because it was witnessed by so many people and heard by them, and it came to pass exactly as he said it. In this hadith in Sahih Muslim and other collections, the Prophet ﷺ is digging the trench along with the Muhajirun and the Ansar. And as he's digging, he sees Ammar bin Yasir hard at work. And the hadith says that he was doing the work of two men, working very hard, digging in this trench and carrying out the dirt. And as he saw him, the Prophet ﷺ said to Ammar bin Yasir, he says, May Allah have mercy on you. Rahimakallah, ya Ammar. He says, تَقْتُلُكَ أَلْفِئَةُ الْبَاغِيَةِ تَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ وَيَدْعُونَكَ إِلَى النَّارِ أو كما قال صلى الله عليه وسلم. He says, may Allah have mercy on you, Ya Ammar. You will be killed by the rebellious group. You will call them to paradise and they will call you to the fire. So this was witnessed by many of the Muslims who were digging in the trench. And this spread. So after years had gone by, you know, after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims who remember that, they're always paying attention to what's going on with Ammar. You know, where is he? You know, what's going on? And as there emerged different fitan and civil strife within the Muslim community, uh, later on in Islamic history, we find that during the reign of Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu, uh, it was Ammar bin Yasir who was killed in the year 37 after Hijrah during the reign of Sayyidina Ali when Ammar fought against the forces of Al-Fi'atul Baghiyah that rebelled against Imam Ali radiallahu anhu. Those forces, when they rebelled, were fought against by Ammar. He was killed by this rebellious group when he was 80 years old. And many people were confused by some of that strife. You know, because these are two parties, both of them are Muslims, but it's a, it's a very nasty fitna. 
But when they saw who killed Ammar, they realized, okay, they are wrong. They're just rebellious. They're going against the haqq in this matter. And the haqq is with Sayyidina Ali. And they realized with clarity that after the fact, when they saw that Ammar was killed by that side and not this side or someone else. So that took place in the year 37 after Hijrah. And the prediction took place as they're digging in the trench. Uh, lastly, after they dug the trench, we said that they had six days to spare before the forces of the Ahzab made their way to Medina. After the trench is dug and they're preparing for receiving these forces, the Prophet ﷺ gives the command for them to send the women and children away to a fortress called Al Fari'ah. Uh, you know, the Arabs, they had these different walled fortresses. They weren't as large or as well built as the fortresses built by the Jewish tribes. But this was a fortress that they had. They, because he's not going to send them to the fortresses of Banu Quraidah because he's not sure about their loyalties. And we'll see where their loyalties lie when we get to the battle and the consequences of their own decisions. So he sent them to this fortress that belonged to Banu Haritha of the Ansar. And this, this is where they stayed. And Hassad bin Thabit was in charge of remaining there with them. And there's a story about him too, because as the fight goes on, there's a story we'll tell about him where he had a difficult time holding his sword. Because he was a, you know, he was a man of art and culture, a poet. He wasn't much of a fighter. And so when it came time for the fighting, he had a, a difficult time of it. But that will come uh, later, inshallah. So next week, inshallah, we will discuss the arrival of those confederates, the Ahzab, the skirmishes, and then the betrayal of Banu Quraidah. So I've given you the spoiler already. You know, they did betray, which is typical, right? There were three, and one did it, the second did it, and the third did it. It just took time. And then we'll talk about the other details about the battle and different things that happened, inshaAllah ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.